We've been in 1 John the last uh, several weeks, and we continue in 1 John today. Uh, if you've not been with us, it's important to note that uh, John's an old man. This is uh, the disciple John. This is uh, John, the one who wrote the gospel. And uh, now he's in his 80s, his 90s. Uh, this is the oldest book in the New Testament. And, um, and he's given his reflections to the church uh, about what life is really all about. And uh, his, his reasoning isn't uh, real logical. It doesn't go from point A to point B to point C. Uh, he, he, it, it's more circular. Uh, and, uh, and he doesn't pull any punches. He's very direct. And um, I don't know about you, but what I enjoy about older people is that they just tell you how it is. And uh, that's what John is doing uh, throughout uh, this letter. And he does it again uh, today. And so let's read these three verses together, and then we'll uh, kind of pick them apart. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The word of the Lord. Uh, so three points today, one for each verse. Uh, verse 15, uh, what the world is not. Verse 16, what the world is. And verse 17, how to overcome the world. So what the world is not, what the world is, and how to overcome the world. Look at verse 15. Uh, verse 15, uh, we get the first imperative in the book. In fact, it's a prohibition. It's a direct command that says, do not love the world or the things in the world. But you got to be really careful how you define world here. I mean, think back to John's famous verse in his gospel, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So in that instance, John 3, 16, it seems like world is a good thing because God loves it. But then here in verse 15 of chapter 2 in 1 John, it sounds like a bad thing because we're told not to love it. So which is it? Well, many in the church make world to mean all things physical. And if that's the case, then spiritual things are God things, spiritual things are good things, and physical things are not God things, physical things are bad things. But that just can't be the case. Let me give you a few reasons why that can't be the case. The first is God created us in his image with bodies. We weren't spirits, and then Adam and Eve sinned, and then they got bodies. No, they had bodies and they were made in God's image. And when you're made in God's image, that means that all persons, all bodies have dignity. They have value. And so our body should be treated with dignity and value. And this is the ultimate reason to take human rights seriously. That's the first reason. The second, Jesus inhabited a body. He was raised with a body and he's going to return with a body. And so that means that Christianity pays your body an incredible compliment. And they're good. Our bodies are good. It validates eating well. It validates working out. It validates going into the medical profession because bodies are good. The third reason, uh, God gave physical skills to all people. If you go back to the Old Testament and look at Exodus chapter 31, 
Uh, the temple is being built. It's being designed and then built. And it's being designed and built by people with physical skill. James 1.17 says that all gifts are from above. So both believers and non-believers have been given gifts that can be used to make the world a beautiful place. Fourth reason, physical creation is, is good. So sure, at the end of the day when God made Adam and Eve, he called them good, but he called all the other days good. And all those other days, God created physical things. So you see that physical things are good. The world is good. Because God made it and he redeemed it through Christ. So the Bible tells us it's okay to love matter. It's okay to love the physical world. But we can't live as if matter is all that matters. I mean, look at the three things he lists in verse 16. This is what the world is. Look at them. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at his first two, desires. He lists it twice. And the word for desire is used here, but it's also got a prefix on the, on the beginning of it. The prefix is epi, E-P-I. The same word you'd use for epicenter. And what's the epicenter? It's the very, very, very center. It's the intense center. An epidemic is, uh, is, is a disease that, that, that affects lots of people. So epi just means intensity. So when he uses this word desire, it really should be the word intense desire or over desire. And you look at the first one, it's this over desire of the flesh. And a lot of times in the New Testament, flesh just means our sinful self. But what flesh means here is our body, our actual body. So it's the over desires of our body. It's talking about our inflated physical appetites. Look at the second one. The second one is the desire of the eyes or the over-desires of the eyes. It's the inflated desire for beauty. And then that last one, the pride of life. It talks about the pride of life. It's talking about how we're prone to take too much credit for the good things that happen in our lives. That's the world. That's the world that we are not to love. So let's break down each of the three. The first one, over-desires of the body. The over-desires of the body. And I, I talk about lots of different places here, but I want to pull out three. The first one is food and drink. The over-desires, these are our appetites, right? So the appetites for food and drink. Now the church historically uh, has identified overeating and over-drinking as being sin. And it's not been until recently that undereating has also been recognized for the problem that is it, it, it is. But whether you overdrink, you, over, you overeat, or you undereat, it's all the same. You're using food and drink to deal with the stress of life. It's a strategy. And you need food and drink to live, but you should not live for food and drink. You see the difference? You need food and drink to live, but you should not Live for food and drink. The second thing, the second thing, the, the, the over-desires of the body, I'm going to use the word leisure. You could use travel, I suppose, or vacation, but, or, or, or rest in, in one sense, but I'm going to use the word leisure. 
If you over, have an overappetite for leisure, you dread Mondays. <laughs> you valorize Fridays. You make vacations they're the, uh, of utmost importance. You, you, you take the same, let's take the same from a minute ago, that, you, that we do need leisure, we need rest to live, but we should not live for our time off. Now, this usually happens when we hate our jobs. And maybe we need to view our jobs differently. Maybe we need to view our jobs as the redemption that's, that, that, that can be had. Or maybe we need to be honest with why we got into the jobs we got into. Maybe we just did it for the pay. Maybe we just did it for the security. We've got to think about doing things differently. So the over-desire for leisure. This is the third thing, sex. An appetite, the physical appetite for sex. Now, sex is a good thing. There's a whole book of the Bible that glories in sex, the Song of Solomon. And you'll find that the Bible is not prudish at all about sex. In fact, it'll make you blush over and over and over again. But sex is good. Sex is good because reproduction is good. Sex is good because when it's done between a man and a woman in marriage, it leads to greater intimacy. Sex is good because it points us to the reality of our relationship with God because one day we will be united with him. But when sex is practiced outside of these confines, it's done in such a way that we use others to feed our appetites. So you see the over-desires of the body. We have the over-desire of the, of the eyes too. The over-desires of the eyes, they've got to do with appearances. And much like our physical appetites, they're not bad in and of themselves. What you'll see with your eyes is not necessarily bad in and of themselves. But it comes bad when we gain our sense of worth via appearance. We get into name brands. We get into cars. We get into the Joanna Gaines redone home. Anyone? My, my. You get into this slender figure. You get into this over-the-top luxury. But Christians see this over-the-top luxury for what it really is. It's just an empty facade. It's materialism. And one person called materialism the American gospel. The more you have, the happier you'll be. We know this isn't true. I mean, consider two studies. One found that as a nation's wealth goes up, its happiness goes down. Another found that after for adjusting for population, 10 times as many people suffer from depression than they did 50 years ago in America. Oh my. So don't you see how money is a bad God and a lousy religion? But what gets us in that place? It's the over-desire of our eyes. Now think about the pride of life. See, the first two are areas where our desires are fixed on what we don't have. And the third one, the pride of life, is about areas of life where you do have. Now, it might be something material that you're proud of. It might be an accomplishment. It might be a reputation. But you know you suffer from the pride of life if you always have your feelings hurt. If you backbite. If you're defensive when you're confronted, it might be have something to do with the thing that you're proud of being threatened. 
the pride of life. So you see what he's saying about the world here, the over-desires of the body, the over-desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Do you see what's going on here? Is that the, the, the problem is in here. This is where the beast is to be battled. Our rival is within. So do you love the world? Does outward prosperity appeal to you more than growth and godliness? Do you esteem and crave the approval of those around you? Do you go to great lengths to avoid looking foolish or being rejected for your faith? What does your mind go to when it's idle? What does it drift easily towards? What do you easily talk about? What do you easily, effortlessly spend money on? These are the things of the world. See, that's what the world is. So the world isn't physical matter per se. That's verse 15. The world is these three things, the over-desire of the body, the over-desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. So verse 17 tells us how we overcome the world. Look at it again, verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jen and I this summer, August 7th to be exact, here in just uh, almost six months to the day, uh, we'll be celebrating our 20-year wedding anniversary. Man, made it. So I guess we're at the 19 and a half. We could celebrate today, almost, you know? Be better than watching Taylor Swift on TV, I suppose. But it's clearly been a really long time since I was in the dating game. <laughs> at least that's the hope, right? Um, <laughs> But from just dealing with people like you, uh, I've learned the best way to get over a breakup. You know what it is? It's not eating donuts. It's not taking up cycling. It's not binging the office. The easiest way to get over a breakup is this. You find a new crush. It's the easiest way to do it. That you've got to replace an old love for a new one. Now, there's this old sermon, old Puritan sermon. It's really good. It's just very verbose. And uh, it's called the expulsive, uh, the expulsive Nature of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers. It's so good. It's hard to read, but it's so good. And what he's trying to say is that one affection leaves only when a new one comes in. So I can beat on the world up here all day. I and mean, that's what preachers are really good at, right? I can beat up on the over-desires of the eyes, the over-desires of the body, and the, and the pride of life. I can do that all day. But it's not going to do any good. It's just telling you to get rid of one thing without telling you a new thing in order to love. And John knows that. And so in verse 17, he beats up a little more on how silly it is to love the world. And that's why he says in the first part, the world is passing away. But what he's continuing to try to do is, is to try to show us that because it's passing away, we'll be less likely to be mesmerized by it. If you know there's no future in loving the world, it helps you not cling to its offers to satisfy our heart's longings. When you know the world is passing away, you know it's transient, you know it's temporary, you know it's headed for destruction. 
But the second half of verse 17, he holds out something beautiful. He says that if you do his will, you will abide forever. He starts getting to us, doesn't he? He starts talking about eternity. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity into our hearts. There's something in us that longs for forever. It longs for something that will last. And because our hearts long for these things, we think that we're going to get it out of our physical appetites. We think we're going to get it out of beauty. We're going to think we're going to get it out of the pride of life. But it's never going to fulfill those longings. See, brother and sister, the only thing that will last, the only thing that is eternal is God. And God has sent his son. He has sent his son Jesus from his eternal home to come to earth where Jesus never looked for the over-desires of the body or the eyes or the pride of life to fulfill his deepest longings. He only looked to the Father. He was fully satisfied by it. He had the full approval of his heavenly Father. And then he gave up that approval. He gave it up when he hung on a cross where, where he was judged by the Father for our sins, not his. He was judged for our worldliness, not his. And he rose again. He rose again and he ascended back to his heavenly home and he's now preparing a heavenly home for you and for me. And here's the good news. You don't have to wait until you enter your heavenly home for your heart to be satisfied. Psalm 16 says this. It lures us in. It says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You hear it in the psalm, don't you? It's just dripping with words of a satisfied heart. And you might be asking, how does that happen? How do I get a satisfied heart? Well, the first thing is, is you've got to do the heart work. <laughs> you've got to repent of loving the world, of your former ways. You've got to see Jesus as beautiful. That's the heart work. But it's more than that. There's practical things too, especially when it comes to the over-desires of our bodies and of our eyes. There's a, a really good book. I've read it a few years ago. I've mentioned it a couple times. Some of you are reading it. Uh, some of you are reading it in a study from a church. And it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's written by a guy named John Mark Comer. And he's got a chapter in his book called Simplicity. And a lot of what I'm going to give you about the practical nature of dealing with worldliness, I got from this little chapter. Now, simplicity is not just used by him. Simplicity is what a lot of Christian thinkers, is what they refer to as the Christian discipline of what we might call minimalism. And at the end, he gives us 12 tips in that chapter. I'm not going to give you all 12. I'm just going to give you the ones I found most helpful. Number one, he says this, before you spend money, Ask yourself, what is the true cost of this item? He says, every single thing you buy costs you not just money, but time. And we're much too apt to choose money and stuff over time and freedom. 
Second one, never impulse buy. A friend of mine actually in this room, I'm not going to point him out, but a friend of mine recently told me that if his kids ever find something they want, they've got to wait three days before they buy it. I like that. I thought, gosh, I need to do that. Me and your kids. The third one. When you spend money, opt for fewer, better things. Now, this might be especially true with clothes, but overall, it just validates the physical world while not living for it. Number four, when you can, share. Now, this might be a lawnmower for you and your neighbors, but I think the practice of sharing, it, it keeps us open-handed. It helps us see that we're just stewards and not owners. Fifth, get into the habit of being generous. So let me just give you some for instances. These are, honestly, there are things, these are things I've already seen in many of you. Uh, one thing you could do, instead of taking trade-in value for your car, find somebody fresh out of college who's strapped for cash and give it away. You can give it away to one of our nonprofit partners, one of you. Gave a car to a nonprofit partner seven or eight years ago. Did I give it to Lighthouse? I still see it all the time. I can't believe that thing's still running. It's because somebody in here gave their car away instead of selling it. Or just take eating out. Go, go eat out somewhere and uh, look on your uh, meal train. My, my thing's over there. You'll see there's two babies that have been born. We got three more ready in the next couple weeks. They're all going to have meal trains. When you go out to eat, Click on that tab, text them, and say, I'm going to order you takeout. Here's the link to the menu. What can I bring over for you? It's being generous. Or you go out to eat with your friends, surprise them, pick up the tab. Well, only if you're going to a cheap place, you know. (laughs) The sixth one, live by a budget. I'm talking to myself here. This is hard for lots of reasons, but budgeting is an essential practice when you have disposable income if you want to live a life of simplicity. So do the hard work. Do the practical steps. And when you do, transformation is on the way. See, if you just do the hard work, it doesn't automatically translate into practice. That's how messed up we are. I wish it was automatic, but it's not. Things get lost in translation. But if you do the practical work without the heart work, it's just legalism. You got to put the two in tandem because the practices are reinforcing the heart realities and the heart realities are working themselves out into practice. And when that happens, you know that God is slowly making you into the image of his beloved son. See, this is just following Jesus 101 in many ways. And the cost is always high. But friends, the cost of not following Jesus is so much higher. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want to follow you in this way. We do not want to be worldly. We know, we know at least cognitively that living for the world, it, it never satisfies It's like eating junk food and hoping to get nutrients. 
And Lord, we need to feast on you. We, we want to we, 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 we feast on you and we want to say the same things as the psalmist did. Although we have no good apart from you. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And we're able to say it because we've experienced it. So Lord, would you do that work in us? We pray these things in your name. Amen.